You're listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine at 75 Market Street, Portland, Maine. Download past shows and become a subscriber of Dr. Lisa Belial on iTunes. See the Dr. Lisa website or Facebook page for details. Here are some highlights from this week's program. You have to stick to your concept. Don't try to get out of it. Yes, you want to give people what they want, but you also have to be true to your concept. And it, it, it can be tight on the pocketbook sometimes to do that because you know that if you just ran this special, sure, you'd be busy for, for a few hours, but it's not worth it. It, it takes everything, everybody out of their game. And I think it's really important to, to do that. Maine's a big state. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of places, and I, I haven't. I feel like I haven't really even scratched the surface. I mean, if if, if in every town there's one place worth eating, then I've got a lot of a lot of work to do. You know. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors: Maine Magazine, Marcy Booth of Booth, Maine, Apothecary by Design, Premier Sports Health, a division of Black Bear Medical. Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage, Ted Carter Inspired Landscapes, Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial, Dream Kitchen Studios, Harding Lee Smith of The Rooms, and Bangor Savings Bank. This is Dr. Lisa Belial, and you are listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, show number 129, Eat Mean, airing for the first time on Sunday, March 2nd, 2014. Today's guests include Harding Lee Smith, executive chef and owner of The Rooms and Boone's Fish House and Oyster Room, and Joe Riccio, food editor with Maine Magazine. Maine is a food lover's paradise. We know how to grow our food, how to prepare it, and how to savor it. It is a joy to live in a place where such a fundamental aspect of life is cherished. Today's guests understand why nourishing ourselves is so important. Chef Harding Lee Smith and Maine Magazine food editor Joe Riccio have made it their life's work to bring food to the forefront. We hope you enjoy our conversations and are inspired to eat Maine. Thank you for joining us. There are people who uh, dedicate their lives to food and have some success in doing that. And there are several of these people here in Portland, one of whom is Harding Lee Smith, who is the owner and chef proprietor of The Rooms, and now also Moon's Oyster Room, which I guess is your latest room. The fourth room, clearly the ability to say four rooms says a lot. The fourth room is a house, we like to say. The fourth room (laughs) is a house, right. So thanks for coming in and joining us today. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. We're talking today about food because Maine Magazine every year does a food issue and it does an Eat Maine. And in fact, food is a very big part of what Maine Magazine has to offer its readers. So you already knew that, though. You already knew that Mainers liked food and you've known it for a long time because you're from Maine and you've been doing food in Maine for many years. I, I have been. It's uh, it's a lot different now, though. They really love it now. Before, it was about sustenance and making sure you're using what was around you. You know, we tapped trees when I was a kid and made maple syrup. We'd burn it now and again. But it was always using that natural resource that was around you. I think a lot of it comes from frugality. I think that we were didn't have a lot of money. My parents were educators. And so you tried to make the best of what you could. So if you had a chicken, you were going to, you know, roast it, then make a stock out of it, make soup with it. You're going to do everything you could do. I think that's kind of like a goes to Italian food a little bit. They're very frugal. A lot of their recipes and things come about from using everything you can use, using the whole animal kind of thing. You grew up in West Bath. West Bath, right and, on the water, yeah. 
And your your parents still have their house? Yeah, mm-hmm. my mom and stepdad have the house. They renovated it a few years ago. It was a little 900-square-foot sort of uh, shelter institute-style house, and it's been renovated to about a 3,000-square-foot beautiful home on the water. Yeah, very happy my mom's kept that over the years. What What has it been like for you to have grown up in Maine and you went away for a little while to mm-hmm. get your education and then you came back again? What, what, what are the contrasts? What are the things that you've noticed? I think you have to go, first off, you have to leave. Um, if you grow up here, you have to leave in order to know how great Maine is. I left when I was 18. I came back, of course, for vacation. I didn't just abandon my family altogether. But I went out to California. I went to Boston University first. And then I, so I learned a lot about the big city there. Then I moved to California to San Francisco. Then went to Italy and Europe for a while, and then to Hawaii. And then you kind of get to that point. You're gone 18 years or so, and you realize that, you know, Maine's not so bad. Maine's really actually a great place. And came back to visit for an extended period and decided it was time to move back. It was really – a lot had to do with the Red Sox, too, by the way. I'll just mention that. Um, they don't have professional baseball in Hawaii. But it, it uh, you realize that it's, it's insular and small, but it's also – it's people are so close to the city, so close to Boston, that – there's that big city feel to it without having all the chaos that goes along with it. I think we're getting to that, you know, traffic thing a little bit that, you know, we didn't used to have. But the food scene itself, that everything comes, happens five years later in Maine, they say. And so we're getting that five years ago thing that happened in New York and Boston. We're getting it here now, and it's just fantastic. I mean, the the restaurants and chefs, it's remarkable. Compared to when I was growing up here, there was the Village Cafe, there was Tamillo's, there was not very much, you know. There was uh, F. Parkeridis, which is a great place. All these are great places, iconic. But they weren't the kind of restaurants we have today. They weren't the foodie restaurants or they weren't the, you know, big-name chefs or, or just people who are dedicated to the craft, like you were saying before, who just live and breathe restaurants and, and food and the lifestyle that goes along with that. As you're saying all these names, it's it's causing me to have flashbacks to my own, my own youth. I grew mm-hmm. up also in Maine right here in Yarmouth, and I think that um, – a fancy restaurant visit for us was the Roma. Yeah. We used to go there yeah. on Congress Street. I think it's closed several years ago, but that was that was the experience. That was sort of the hallmark. But right. what we would consider the upper end food these days, it doesn't necessarily have to be fancy surroundings. In fact, the focus really is more around the food. Mm-hmm. Everything now seems to be good. It's like in New York. I was just there a few few weeks ago, a week ago actually. And everything is good. Your pizza place on the corner is good because there's so much you have to be. You know, they demand it. And I think that's what's happened here. It's the same thing. People, some good restaurants came. People expect they raised the bar, so to speak. And people expected them to be like that. And the ones that didn't raise the bar themselves or come up to that bar, they fell away. And other ones replaced them that are that are maintaining that that quality. And, and you, don't, you don't have to have the beautiful, fancy surroundings with the you know, the right fork at the right time and all that sort of thing. You want to have a nice warm surrounding, certainly, and something that's been cared for. But it really is about the food. It really is. About, and it's main restaurants. You don't see places that don't survive are places that seem like they're hotel restaurants or, you know, that have that sort of odd look. They have to be main. You look at what Hugo's did with their renovation. That's a main restaurant. Brick and everything made right there. They sourced the wood from the bottom of the lake and all that. It's just beautiful the way that is. And it isn't, it isn't that there aren't beautiful settings. I mean, if you go to 4th Street, and it's beautiful in its own way. Gorgeous. It, it's just not it. the <laughs> classical, like, white tablecloth right. um, formal right. setting. Although we do have those in Maine as well. Mm-hmm. We have a few. We, we have the White Barn Inn down down there. I'm having a hard time thinking of one off the top of my head. Arrows was one. Arrows is now closed. Uh, Primo has white tablecloths, but their food is very much farm farm to table kind of, you know, rustic kind of food. 
I can't think of any that are really fancy. We were just down in Boston, excuse me, in New York, and we went to two super high-end, Menrea and uh, I can't think of the other one off the top. Oh, DB Bistro. And that's ultra white tablecloth, crumbing the table and everything. It's so different than it is here, you know. Maybe in five years that'll come here too. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe. I, I think the nice thing about Maine and the restaurants here in Maine is that there is something for every person. Mm-hmm. And in fact, this is kind of the thing that I've noticed about the rooms, the front room, the grill room, the corner room, and now Boone's, um, is that there's something for everyone. They're all slightly different in their own unique way. We tried to fill a niche. Like when I opened the front room, it wasn't about, you know, I want to open a a comfort food spot necessarily, or I want to open a steakhouse. That was, the space became available. We thought it was a great space. It was in the neighborhood. I lived around the corner. I walked by it all the time. And that's what spoke to me from that space was a comfort food neighborhood spot where you can grab a pint and have a pork chop and know it's going to be good and not break the bank. As opposed to saying, well, I want to watch a game. Where am I going to? I have to go. I have wings and so and so, which is all great too. But at that time in Portland, there wasn't that comfort food neighborhood kind of spot. And it really fit that niche. And I think I think that's the that's the thing of it. It's I, I tried to fill it with a steakhouse too. At that time, there was no steakhouse in Portland I mean, to speak of. There might have been you know places that served some meat and so forth, but it, we needed that urban kind of feel where traditional sides and you know nice cuts of steak, but cared well. Naturally raised beef was very important to us. Uh, cooking over the wood fire was huge. It was really important to what you know what each space says it is. I think the corner room it, with the windows it just says Osteria. It says have some, have some nosh, have a glass of wine, have a carafe of wine and some salami and some cheese. You know, if you want to go deeper into it and have some pasta, sure, but it's that kind of place near the theater. Go grab a quick bite, great for lunch. You know, that's kind of what we try to do. And Boone's was an institution for many, many years. So you're doing something even slightly different with Boone's than from the other um, restaurants that you opened. Definitely much different than the other ones that we opened. Um, it, it, once again, it spoke to what was there. Did I bandy around some different ideas of what I could call it, what I could do there? Sure, but it really seemed – first of all, the sign was still there, and you could still use the sign. You couldn't put that kind of sign up ever again, that kind of neon, beautiful arrow pointing to the water kind of sign. And it became available through much negotiations and much hemming and hawing and because knowing that the great expense that it was going to be to, to renovate it because it had really fallen on hard times. It had, you know, the, the – I guess in the 80s and 90s, it sort of went way downhill. It was the iconic place since 1898 for years and years and years. But it definitely had a, um, a sinking, shall you say. So we knew we were going to have to take it board by board and put it back together again. And we took that opportunity to do it much differently than it was, uh, much differently than we had before. But trying to get that feel of it's old. We used all the old timbers are there. The 120, 130-year-old timbers are still there. We replaced the hardwood with what we thought would have been there back in the day. We recovered the hardwood on the second floor, the old Douglas fir, so that's all original. And we tried to make it also kind of like a boat. Like it's your different parts of it at different levels, and it's all trimmed with wood as if you were on some beautiful liner or, or, or old vessel with uh, teak-lined everything. And just it, it really worked out well, I think. And plus we took advantage of the decks. That was the big thing, being down there. Yes, I was actually on the deck at Boone's very early on when it had first reopened, and you're right on the water, mm-hmm. and in fact, we saw some people we knew. It, it felt very comfortable. It felt very um, familiar, and at the same time, new menu, very interesting. I apologize in, in now for any mistakes we might have made. It was definitely a crazy time for us. We were very, very, very busy right out of the gate. I mean, 
so busy you would never would have expected how busy we were been. You know, eight to nine hundred covers a day kind of thing. Whereas the grill room on a really busy day will do two fifty. The front room will do two hundred on a really busy day. So we were quadrupling what we were used to doing. We've now, since it's calmed down, we've been able to, you know, really write the ship. I think we're doing a very good job down there and trying to do some of that nostalgia food where we have some classics like Seafood Newberg and Finn and Hattie and old main things like that that you don't you don't see anymore. Um, or if you do, they are just gluey, gross, flavorless, frozen seafood things. We're trying to really do the right thing by and make it into something that is an iconic restaurant again, the kind of restaurant that if you if you have friends that come to Maine or you come to Maine on vacation or Portland per se, and you've missed it, you, you missed something. You didn't go, you missed something because it's really that Maine experience. You also have a raw bar. We do. Which is, yeah. there aren't that many of those in Portland at this point. There's only there's only uh, three, really. I mean, there's Jay's, which is, you know, an institution in its own right. And there's Eventide, which is becoming an institution in its own right. It's a fabulous place, fantastic place. And then there's us. I think that's really pretty much it that does full-on many varieties of oysters. We have upwards of 10 to 12 varieties of oysters, several different raw things as well on the menu. Some other real interesting things as well there. But the second floor of the restaurant is that is that oyster bar. And we've discovered so many varieties from Maine itself. We try to keep it, I mean, we did, for us, we get some in from out, out of state like Alaska or Washington State or even New Brunswick just so we can have some fun and, and you know, taste the different ones. But we try really hard to have them all from Maine. And we have 12, 13 varieties right now that are from Maine. And is, that is pretty neat. And oysters, you know, you, they are such a delicacy. And at the same time, it's nice to know that they're that they're local and yeah. that Maine's producing this very high quality food. I mean, it used to be lobsters and still is to some extent. But, you know, I think to, to know that it's this treasure that we have access to. I think it's kind of started as like a little cottage industry. People, I have some people that come and sit at the dining bar sometimes and talk to me about the, the fact their daughter just started an oyster farm you know, two or three years ago, would you like to try some? I'm like, absolutely, I'd like to try some. And it's it's difficult to do, but it's, it's um, I think it's something that people found that they can do without, and live a kind of cool lifestyle. You know, they can have their oyster bed without, and you don't necessarily go to work at, you know, they can sit there on their own sort of and be by themselves. It's only at certain times when you have to really work hard and get them, you know. But it was interesting, I found out, and I didn't know this before, is that all the oysters are the same around the world except for the, the wild ones from the European variety. The rest are American oyster, and it they change by where they're being grown or being harvested. Like the ones from Basket Island right outside of Falmouth here are different tasting than the ones from Booth Bay Harbor, but it's really the same variety of oyster. They all start with the same seed. It's very interesting. I didn't realize that. Yeah, I hadn't I hadn't realized that either. It's, you know, it changes. As we, our, our coast is so broken up on that rocky trailing edge coast. Some You can go way up into a river, in the Saka River, in the brackish water, and have a completely different... You know, a real creamy-style oyster as opposed to the cold waters of Booth Bay Harbor where it's coming in right off the ocean as being really crisp and clean. You know, it's interesting. Which is kind of similar to um, your restaurants. And you've placed them in very distinct places, which are kind of picking up the flavors of their neighborhoods. And, I, and it really also it reminded me... Um, you know, the front room is up on Munjoy Hill. And Munjoy Hill, I was a resident there back a few years. It wasn't always the nicest place to no. live. And there are definitely still some pockets that are challenging. But mm-hmm. there's been a revival of that. Mm-hmm. When I was growing up in, in Yarmouth, um, the old port was troublesome for a while. It was a lot of crime, a lot of bar fighting um, that's experienced a renaissance. And now you're on the waterfront. And the waterfront is the same thing, that, you know, that at some point something has shifted. And something is new again. There's a huge renaissance down there. The, a lot of new high-end furniture stores. There's a, 
Edgar Allan. I think it's Edgar Allan. I think that's how you say it. Is it um, Ethan Allen? Ethan Allen. Yeah, that's yeah. the one. And this is, that's the writer guy. Um, Ethan Allen has opened right across from the Commercial Street Pub. It's like very peculiar how this you know renaissance is going on with 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 the Old Port and Commercial Street. And right across from me, from Boone's, that whole wharf, that kind of a dilapidated Three Sons Lobster they had to leave a short time ago, or about a year ago, year and a half ago, has been purchased and being completely renovated. They've replaced all the piles underneath. They're tearing the building down, putting up beautiful buildings. There's going to be more restaurants down there. So it's coming in again. You know, it's really, really fun. Here on the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, we've long recognized the link between health and wealth. Here to speak more on the topic is Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial. As I consider the topic of today's show, Eat Maine, I thought not about food and restaurants, but more about what feeds me. What is it in my life that really nourishes my entire being? It wasn't hard to find the answer because it's my work. Helping clients realize that money is a living thing they have a relationship with, that like all relationships is complex and has its ups and downs, this brings me great joy. Because each time a client sees the bigger picture and has that aha moment, I know that what I've helped them understand lets them live a more fully connected life. And living a good life is truly food for the soul. Be in touch if you want to know more. Tom at shepherdfinancialmain.com. You can evolve with your money. Securities offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA, SIPC. Investment advice offered through Flagship Harbor Advisors, a registered investment advisor. Flagship Harbor Advisors and Shepherd Financial are separate entities from LPL Financial. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is brought to you by Dream Kitchen Studio by Matthew Brothers. Whether your style is contemporary, traditional, or eclectic, their team of talented designers are available to assist you in designing the kitchen or bath of your dreams. For more information, visit www.dreamkitchenstudio.com. There was a time when the apothecary was a place where you could get safe, reliable medicines, carefully prepared by experienced professionals, coupled with care and attention, focused on you and your unique health concerns. Apothecary by Design is built around the forgotten notion that you don't just need your prescriptions filled, you need attention, advice, and individual care. Visit their website, apothecarybydesign.com, or drop by the store at 84 Marginal Way in Portland and experience pharmacy care the way it was meant to be. In each of these situations, you've had to um, maintain a vision to convince people to support something that wasn't previously in existence. And I can imagine that that would create friction at times to be the first person that sees what something could be. It's, um, you have to stick to your guns. That's something that I tell all the managers, my wife, my bookkeeper, everybody is you have to stick to your concept. Don't try to get out of it. Yes, you want to give people what they want, but you also have to be true to your concept. Like at the front room. After a year and a half of doing, you know, comfort food and short ribs and so forth, did I maybe try to start to stray a little bit towards doing a little bit higher end, fancier plating stuff just for my own growth and so forth? I did, but then I kicked myself and stopped myself from doing it. It's a comfort food place. It's a neighborhood spot. You want it to be 
I used to yell across the dining room to somebody coming through the door. Hello, how are you? So-and-so. Because you want the plumber and the mayor could be sitting right next to each other. You know, the plumber and, and Elliot Cutler could be sitting next to each other. It's really this very interesting, interesting thing. But you have to stick to that thing. Same thing at the grill room. It's a steakhouse. It's a dark restaurant. It's bricky. It has, it's about smoke and blues play for music and that sort of thing. You know, it's a martini kind of bar. Don't try to be something cutesy and, you know, so forth. We're not that. Um, I've worked for different, many, many different restaurants over the course of my career. And the ones that do well seem to me to stick to their guns. You can't have an identity crisis or not know who you are or what you are. Same thing with the corner room. That was the thing. It's an Italian place. Did we think maybe, okay, maybe we need to Americanize a little bit and put, you know, American Chardonnay on instead of an Italian Chardonnay? Yeah, that crossed, crossed my mind more than once, more than 10 times. But... We stuck to our guns, and it's been very successful. It continues to, it gains that after the course. You can't be in a hurry, I think, to be super successful. You're always going to be really busy right out of the gate, always. And then you're going to have a, quite a lull where it just evens out into regular business or low business or something. But if you stick to your guns and you let people appreciate it and the word of mouth really starts, they either come back or they stay or business continues to grow just naturally, organically, I guess you could say. And a lot of it has to do with social media and stuff that you can do to, to keep your message out there and so forth. Um, but sticking to your guns is hugely important. Same thing with Boone's. You know, we're a fish house downstairs. We're not a steakhouse. We have meat options, obviously. We have a wonderful pepper steak and some other things on the menu for the non-fish person and some vegetarian things as well. But we know we're about the finest fish we can get. We get it from right across the street or right down the road or literally right off the, the lobster boat. He comes and brings his lobster traps right up there and carries them into the restaurant and drops them down. I mean, that lobster was, was sitting in the bottom of the ocean, you know, four hours before. It's really, and that really does make a difference, by the way, in how they taste. The ones in the Hannaford case are not, the supermarket case, I should say, are not the, uh, are not the best ones in the world. But... You know, you, you get that when it starts to slow down you, and you're over that, you know, that original blush period when you're so busy, you always think, okay, how can I do this better? What do I have to need to do? What do I, what do I need? How do I need to tweak it or whatever? But you need to stick to that, that recipe for it. You know, you, you think of a, a cocktail bar, say, like downstairs here, like the Hunt and Alpine Club. Great place. Um, would they be smart by bringing in Budweiser and putting draft beer of you not know, good beer so they can get tourists in the summertime? No, they wouldn't. It would be it would ruin everything that they're trying to do. And I, and I applaud people that continue to do that. You have to stick to your guns, and it 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 can be tight on the pocketbook sometimes to do that because you know that if you just ran this special or you 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 ran some Miller Lite special and you got a bunch of twenty two year olds to come into the restaurant. Sure, you'd be busy for for a few hours, but it's not worth it. It, it takes everything, everybody out of their game, and I think it's really important to to do that. I also want to make sure that I thank you, really, for providing food. I mean, you've talked about the fact that you have a steak room and you have comfort food and you have Italian food, but as an individual who eats mostly vegetables and no red meat and no chicken and sometimes fish, you know, it's it is very important for me to be able to go to a restaurant with other people that do eat those things um, and have food available for me to eat. So I have always been able to find things at, at the front room and um, at the grill room, and and I haven't spent as much time at Boone's, but I suspect that's equally the case. There. Probably more there than any place. Yeah. Well, and, and it means a lot. I mean, I, I have never wanted to be the special person who asks for the special things. I just want to be a person asking for predominantly plant-based menus right, right. and having them having it be tasty mm-hmm. and you actually do provide that at your restaurants and it, it really i mean it means a lot you don't want to be stuck ordering the green salad every time 
<laughs> right. Yeah. No, that's very true. Although I will say one of my staples at lunch um, when I'm doing the radio show is going across the street to the Groom, and you guys have a couple of great salads that I rotate, you know, back and forth. And it, I think that this is the, this is what always to me shows um, the mark of a good restaurant is, is a restaurant that can that can provide can take whatever the food is whether it's vegetables or whether it's oysters and make them taste great without kind of gilding the lily yeah well it's it's been always been important for us I mean obviously clearly I mean this is radio so you can't tell exactly but I don't eat just vegetables myself um, I enjoy all, all manner of, of food but it's I've lived with dated, um, no friends who have uh, their spouses are, and be um, very good friends with some people that just don't. It's not what they enjoy. It's not it does either not necessarily because it's moral, morally wrong, or something like that, but it's because it doesn't make them feel well. At the at the front room when we first opened, being on Munjo Hill particularly and knowing the kind of population that lives there, it's very important for us to have vegetarian options or light options. The soup there has always been vegetarian since day one, since absolute day one. We've always had a vegetarian entree of some sort, sometimes two and sometimes three, that have ended up make, making part of our menu and staying on the menu, even though they're not meat-based. We had a vegetarian pot pie that was on the menu for two and a half years, and we just took it off because we were basically tired of making it, but it, it was still very popular. I think at the grill room, it's always an interesting thing when, because we do have the bull hanging over the door, and it is, it is mostly about steak, but we do have, you know, we have some very light dishes on there as well, and we have... The salads, like the, I think you're probably talking about the grill room salad, which is full of crunchy vegetables, and it's pretty healthy. It's it you know you get it light, you get it without the blue cheese, and it's it's very light. The corner room, and this talks to the just the inherency of of Italian food is a lot of things are vegetable based. You know that's probably where we do the most business with the local some of the local farmers, um, Stone Cipher Farm particularly. Um, and we had our own farm for, for a little bit where it was providing a lot of our vegetables and eggs for our, for our pasta and so forth. You eat what's in season in Italy because it's just what there is. This is coming from ancient culture and, and the, when there wasn't airplanes and so forth to bring you, bring you things that weren't in season. And that sort of is, it was, became part of this, the way we did things there, even, even knowing that we had done it in the past and it's important to do. This just evolved into being really big part of the menu. I think a lot of it had to do with our chef de cuisine, Sean Doherty, the original chef de cuisine there. His girlfriend, not vegetarian per se, but she won't eat anything she won't kill. And so that limits her to a lot of things because she's not a giant woman. And so we sort of learned to do that and to, and to, and to uh, make things that way. And the, the, you and I were talking before about gluten-free and how that's uh, – a movement, I guess you could say, and it's 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 not going. This is not going away. The gluten free thing, and it's becoming very clear to me, and I think to a lot of chefs, that it's not necessarily just a thing we used to joke about. Absolutely, did we used to laugh when we get the gluten free comments three and four years ago? Like, oh boy, here they go again. Here they go again. What can we make that's gluten free? And you realize that it's actually a thing. Having known several people, some very close to me, who found that eating, not eating gluten or not eating it in great quantities makes them feel much better, makes them digest better, makes them have more energy, makes them not be tired, you know, not be tired and makes them digest better so that they can then enjoy their life freely instead of, you know, living in sort of fear. Um, so we've crafted our menu with Brian Dame, the original chef there, to a lot of it to be gluten-free, to have our, our fried food. Strangely enough, is not necessarily always the most healthy thing. If it's done right, it shouldn't be unhealthy, actually. It should be very ungreasy and, and crispy and delicious if you fry it properly. But it's all gluten-free. It's all based off of that. Our, our oyster room menu, we have a separate kitchen upstairs. 
We produce a lot of uh, vegetarian things up there just naturally because that's just what we're doing, you know. We make our own cashew cheese instead of so you can actually some of the things are vegan. Most of the soups are vegan or vegetarian. And I don't – it's funny because you, you're saying how it's, you know, it's important to you and, and you're thankful for that. We didn't really do it for that. It's just another part of the food that we do. We didn't do it because we needed to fit some niche or something like that. It was just something that we – it just was along the course of cooking, I think. Well, and that's – I think maybe that's what I'm thanking you for is that it didn't have to be a special thing. Right. It was just as important as every other thing. Right. It wasn't that vegetables were reduced to sort of a lesser place on the plate. So yeah. a lot of times the vegetables are the center of the plate and the meat just sort of adorns it. We've really done that a lot of times, actually. Well, and I think that more and more we're realizing that's probably the way that people will need to eat um, moving forward in this life, not only for health reasons, but also for sort of economic and social reasons. Right. So every, every somewhere, somewhere there's a cook snickering knowing that I eat bacon every morning, but that's okay. <laughs> Everybody's everybody does their thing. That's Everybody's right. got their own I way but I do. of eating. <laughs> well, Harding, it has been really a pleasure to I spend time Thank talking you. with you today and I encourage people to learn more about the rooms, the front room, the grill room, and now Boone's Oyster Room right on the waterfront. Um, you have a website people can go to? Yeah, we have several, um, hardingleysmith.com or boonesfishhouse.com or any one of the restaurants is pretty much their their website. You can get there somehow. It's uh, thefrontroom.com, thegrillroom.com, so forth and so on. You can find it pretty easily. Well, I can wholeheartedly attest to the fact that your restaurants provide delicious food, um, often very healthy food, and I hope that the people who are listening take the time to look into your restaurants and spend some time eating there. I hope so, too. We've been speaking with Harding Smith, who is the owner of the rooms here in Portland, the grill room, the front room, the corner room, and now Boone's Oyster Room. Thank you for coming in today. You're welcome. As a physician and small business owner, I rely on Marcy Booth from Booth, Maine to help me with my own business and to help me live my own life fully. Here are a few thoughts from Marcy. As you settle into this new year, I hope you take a moment to consider the health of your business and how you can make certain it continues to thrive. Now is the perfect time for a business checkup. It's a perfect time to reflect on the systems and processes you had in place last year to determine what worked and what didn't run as smoothly as it should have. Write down the specific changes you'd like to implement to tighten things up over the next month, three months, six months, or a year. Give yourself realistic tasks and goals. This introspection and planning will go a long way toward making certain that 2014 is a year of great success. I'm Marcy Booth. Let's talk about the changes you need. BoothMaine.com. This segment of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour is brought to you by the following generous sponsors. Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage in Yarmouth, Maine. Honesty and integrity can take you home. With Remax Heritage, it's your move. Learn more at rheritage.com. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is brought to you by Bangor Savings Bank. For over 150 years, Bangor Savings has believed in the innate ability of the people of Maine to achieve their goals and dreams. Whether it's personal finance, business banking, or wealth management assistance you're looking for, at Bangor Savings Bank, you matter more. For more information, 
visit www.bangor.com. When you think of Portland food and the Portland food scene, you probably think of Joe Riccio. I'm not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing. It's certainly, uh, you're certainly a personality, and we don't have a lot of food personalities that aren't specifically chefs here in Portland. So I'm really glad that you, Joe Riccio, have come in to talk to us today about the work you're doing with Maine Magazine and as the now-again food editor with Maine Magazine for our show, which is talking about food. Yeah, well, I'm happy to be here. (laughs) We'll talk about food all day. (laughs) Joe, I knew you from a ways back in part because we both grew up in Yarmouth. Absolutely. <laughs> and you were friends with one of my brothers, I think. Yeah, we used to play uh, Dungeons and Dragons together back in the day. Back in the <laughs> day. It was amazing. Well, you are doing something that is very unique to, I actually don't know of any other Yarmouth High School graduates currently who are doing the type of work you're doing. Cool. Which is, you're out there in the world, not only are you um, actively involved in aspects of sort of food delivery, service, creation, but also evaluation, critique. And tell us how you came to be so interested in food. Uh, I think it's funny because, I mean, I've obviously, I mean, just by looking at me, you can tell that I've always enjoyed eating. Uh, But I think I really got serious about it, um, I'd say in my mid-20s, when I really started to branch out. Uh, and try a lot of kind of unique things and, you know, definitely things that I didn't have any exposure to when I was growing up in Yarmouth, uh, for sure. So the more I kind of got out there, I lived in Chicago for a while uh, in my 20s, and I started kind of, um, you know, experimenting, experimenting with things like caviar and foie gras and offal and things like that. And uh, then it just be kind, of, kind of became an obsession on top of that. Uh, also being in the wine business, obviously, <clears throat> those things go hand in hand. Uh, and basically, at the end of the day, it... it it started to feel like a great way to combine business and pleasure. It's also caused you to need to um, kind of take on multiple roles at once. Yes. Well, idle time gets me in trouble. So the busier I am, generally the happier and more productive I am. Uh, So I figure if I can just kind of, if I can, you know, have three jobs that all kind of cross paths and sort of work with one another, then that's great for me, you know? And um, I think that, that's what keeps things interesting, really. It's just the constant, constantly going in different directions. And, and then there's the writing. Yes. So the writing, um, <clears throat> which I'm actually really excited to be back with Me Magazine and kind of take that in a different, in a, in a more exciting direction, I think. I mean, we've been doing a lot of things in the past, and now I think it's, it'd be fun to just sort of really branch it out and try some new things there. But, uh, yeah, I mean, the writing has been... I guess I've had a lot of different phases uh, there, whether it's, you know, my personal, like, food coma and things like that. And then now with the magazine, and I'm starting to kind of branch out uh, on a national level as well, which is really nice. Um, but, yeah, once again, I mean, it's just – I think the most important thing is I do all of these things anyway, <laughs> so I might as well write about them. You know, this is basically – I don't do this because it's my job. It just works out well that it is my job. I have been struck in the past when reading the work that you've put out there that it's all it is all very personal to you and it's it's uh, as much of a narrative about your life as it is a narrative about food which is different than a lot of standard food critique. Yeah, it that's kind of what I was going for. I wanted people to get a feeling for not so much what I'm eating, well obviously what I'm eating, but I'll, you know why why I'm eating it, why I'm doing this like 
why I like things or choose to live in a certain in a certain way um, that some people tell me sometimes makes them feel exhausted after just reading it, <laughs> which I'm I'm fine with. Um, yeah, I just I think that's I guess why I consider myself different uh, than everybody else because you it can only be one you you know writing about your unique experiences and perspectives. So I think it's fun to combine the sort of travel writing and autobiographical element to it to the to the food writing. You know I think that keeps it interesting for me. You know there are a lot of people out there doing blogs these days, but not everybody has the quality of writing that I've noticed that your blog has or the work that you've done for Maine Magazine. Did you have any formal training? Uh, no formal training uh, at all. I just kind of uh, <clears throat> basically just started writing as I kind of, like I talk, I guess you could say, you know, and it, it obviously, uh, it, as I went, you sort of just absorb. <clears throat> the more people kind of read your writing, or even when you've been working for a magazine, you see your writing get edited. You know, you, you pick up on that and absorb it, and eventually it just kind of becomes second nature. You just kind of start thinking that way. Um, I, and, and by no means <laughs> do I consider myself an amazing journalist, or, you know, I, I'm sure my drafts are filled with grammatical errors, and I don't know. <laughs> that's, and that's fine. I guess that's, that's why they're editors, right? I, th- I think you might be um, selling yourself a little short because I'm, I'm pretty sure you edit your own blog posts and I've read many of them and I, you've got some skills. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> I appreciate it. There is a difference between writing for your own blog and writing for a magazine. And yes. there is some sort of, um, well, a collaboration that needs to take place and, and sometimes um, needing to maybe work within some boundaries. Absolutely. Boundaries aren't something that you seem to <laughs> like as much as the next person. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't love boundaries, but at the same time, I think that, uh, you know, without boundaries, uh, the further I go, it, it kind of, it can get a little out of control. You know, I think that boundaries are a good thing for me, and I think that they force me to be, I think having to actually be a little more professional <clears throat> and write within boundaries is good for me as a writer, you know? I mean, everybody wants to just write whatever they feel like writing, which is what the blog is, and that's that's great. But, you know, it's it's I think you're a better writer if you can tell the same story within boundaries, you know, with a few kind of guidelines on it. You know, it doesn't and it's more satisfying when I kind of succeed and I write a story that I really like and it's actually within the boundaries. And they aren't like ridiculous boundaries by any stretch of the imagination, but they're definitely, you know, like my readership, uh, which is basically based on what I like at any given second, is completely different from, you know, May Magazine is, is a business, you know, and this is a job. And so obviously <clears throat> it's, uh, it's important to appeal to the readership uh, of the magazine. And hopefully I uh, don't manage to offend uh, too many people. <laughs> That's my goal. Well, I think that you've, you've spoken to something that is very... Um profound in a way and that's you know boundaries are are sometimes a good thing you know they yeah. don't have to be something that kind of traps you instead they become sort of a, just a place within which to work and understanding that is something that probably came with time in your life it definitely did uh it's something that i thought at first but then every time i would fight it kind of the next day I'd be thinking about it and I'd actually would write something and read it back. And I'd be like, I, I don't know what my problem was yesterday with this. I, I, I like this. You know, I like, like, as I think I brought it back, as I said before, I like the challenge of it. And uh, I don't know. It's just, it's nice to have both, both worlds. But I've, I've really enjoyed, especially now, I think, 
just watching because me and I was with Maine Magazine in the very beginning and just watching the just the food coverage in general just has been evolving constantly. And now I feel like <clears throat> after spending a year away, uh, I feel like we're ready to kind of come back. We've all kind of collected our thoughts and we're really ready to branch out in a lot of really exciting new directions with it. And uh, yeah, I it's I have a very it, I'm. I have a very different perspective on it now. Um, I have more ideas. Uh, <clears throat> I really want to get, you know, not so much into the kind of tit-for-tat, like, restaurant review or anything like that. I want to just really get into the, the, the cooking and just the, the concepts and the ideas and where they came from and the, and the people. Because there's so many amazing food personalities in the state that they're just a whole story in themselves, you know. Um, I think a lot of people will talk about... <clears throat> the food they eat and, and what foods certain restaurants offer, and that's great. But I think there's a lot more to it than that. And that's where I feel like I'm at now. I'm really excited to kind of delve into that. So, Just before you left to go to Boston, you did a lot of work on your Food Coma series. And yes. I, I'm assuming that that continues, although... The web series? The web I, series. Yes, it's called... Well, I <clears throat> the minute I got to Boston, um, actually literally my second day there... I was selling wine there and I was in an account and a, and a kind of a stranger came up and was like, I, I'm Chris. I really like your show. Uh, I've always thought I could do it better. <laughs> and so that's sort of how it was. So now we have a new show called Off the Wagon. And uh, that's how it kind of started. And then we just like five months later, we started filming episodes. And uh, yeah, it's, I think that's also <clears throat> more evolved than the, the first show. It's just, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing how little you realize, you know, like, you know, it, with, with video, there's so much to it. And it's just such a constantly a work in progress. It's always something you can make better, whether it's like, you know, the voiceover, like I thought that'd be easy, but then all of a sudden you realize it's really hard not to sound incredibly awkward, <laughs> you know, when you're forcing something like reading from a script, you know? So just little things like that, you know, the editing and just really trying to tell a story with the episodes rather than just showing people drinking and eating for no apparent reason. So... I hope that's one once again. <laughs> I think that we're finally starting to achieve that uh, with the show as well. And yet there were some interesting stories, I think, that came out of the food coma work that you did here in Maine. Oh, <laughs> there's no doubt that there are interesting stories <laughs> that came out of every time we filmed an episode or just, you know. And, and I mean, it was such an amazing – I mean, I don't regret a single thing. I mean, we, you know, we had Anthony Bourdain on the show. You know, we – we went, drove seven hours to spend three days in Aroostook County, uh, you know, eating and drinking. I mean, it was amazing. And it really got me to, and it's that also, it's funny how that sort of has really tied in with Maine Magazine <clears throat> because it's enabled me to just travel the state. I mean, I'm from Portland or from Yarmouth, as, as we said, from Yarmouth and, uh, or Southern Maine. And so up until doing these shows, I'd never been north of really that far north of Bangor. I mean, just never really gone up there. And now I've got to explore so much of the state and then I see these places and I can bring it all into the experience. And I feel like that makes me <clears throat> more valuable to the readership because I've just traveled more of Maine uh, with the sole intention of eating. So that's really exciting. And that's just been, it's been nothing but helpful for me moving forward, just knowing the layout of these different towns that are kind of off the grid. The goal of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour is to help make connections between the health of the individual and the health of the community. The goal of Ted Carter Inspired Landscapes is to deepen our appreciation for the natural world. Here to speak with us today is Ted Carter. 
I am always amazed at sort of the invisible hand that works side by side through life with us. I have an old Spanish bread table in the living room of my home in Buxton, and a children's book sits there with carefully pressed flowers in between the pages. And as you open the book, you see inside the yellowing jacket to Louise Jameson from Mrs. Cope, July 8, 1911. Last month, I went with my sister, Abby Carter. She's a prolific children's book illustrator. But we went to Mrs. Cope's a seaside home in Saunderstown, Rhode Island. Of course, she's no longer alive, and the place was just dormant. But we walked the grounds that my grandmother walked when she was a child. My great-grandfather, my grandmother's father, designed the home for Mrs. Cope. And Granny used to spend long summer days in the fields picking flowers and pressing them into the pages of her children's book which I now possess. As I walked through the land with my sister Abby, through the grounds of the old Cope homestead, we felt as though we were guided to this very special place. Walking the fields and meadows Granny played in over 100 years ago, at last we could see the land and the landscape my grandmother had loved as a child. I think it's important for us to remember that as we design and create our own landscapes, that we too can create powerful, magical memories for our loved ones, our friends, and all those that enter these magical spaces. So let's not forget that these places that we create form and shape our life experiences in so many ways. I'm Ted Carter, and if you'd like to contact me, I can be reached at tedcarterdesign.com. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast understands the importance of the health of the body, mind, and spirit. Here to talk about the health of the body is Travis Bullier of Premier Sports, a division of Black Bear Medical. At Black Bear Medical, our priority is to find solutions for all our customers. But we take exceptional pride in the work we do with our customers who have extreme life challenges. Our rehab department and service department provide wheelchairs and other adaptive devices to make life more manageable for those with a disability. Our service department installs accessibility products in your home, such as stair lifts, vertical lifts, and ramps. Our job at Black Bear Medical is to help people live life to the best of their ability. So whether you are disabled or having some difficulty in the golden years, we at Black Bear Medical can help the differently abled level the playing field. Visit blackbearmedical.com or stop by our retail locations in Portland and Bangor to see how we do it. Experience chef and owner Harding Lee Smith's newest hit restaurant, Boone's Fish House and Oyster Room, Maine's seafood at its finest. Joining sister restaurants The Front Room, The Grill Room, and The Corner Room, this newly renovated two-story restaurant at 86 Commercial Street on Custom House Wharf overlooks scenic Portland Harbor. Watch lobstermen bring in the daily catch as you enjoy baked stuffed lobster, raw bar, and wood-fired flatbreads. For more information, visit www.theroomsportland.com. I've done a lot of traveling with Maine Magazine as well for the 48 hours pieces that are written, and I'm with you. I, I think I'm constantly surprised by the food that I, the little gems, you know, the little restaurant gems that you find in different parts of the state, and 
I'm thinking of, I think it's called um, the Mill Hill in Bethel. And this guy who used to be a teacher at Gould and then for the last, I don't know, three to four years has been perfecting the food that he creates and he serves on these plates that he makes as a potter himself. See, yeah. Like that's the kind of thing. It's, it's, that's really the most exciting thing to me about Maine is being someplace like Bethel and discovering something like that. You know, I mean, that's an amazing story. Like, the guy's not only is doing amazing food, but he's also, like, involved and takes pride in, in, in the actual, you know, the the, the flatware and the, in the place that you're eating off of. I mean, that's, I think that's amazing. And I think it's really interesting. And I think that's the main that I think more people want to know about, uh, in addition to the obvious, you know, the Portland, which has got a lot of press, but there's still a lot to say about Portland that hasn't been said. But, you know, Maine's a big state. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of places, and I, I haven't. I feel like I haven't really even scratched the surface. I mean, if if, if in every town there's one place worth eating, then I've got a lot of a lot of work to do. You know. You also spend time with people who aren't um, who aren't from Maine, who have come to Maine, they've transplanted themselves into the state, and they become deeply ingrained in the culture and almost create their own little Maine culture. Um, I'm thinking of Miyaki for the yes. restaurant Miyaki for one. Yeah, it's well it. You can't really beat the standard of living here, and I think a lot of people. And then they're, then they're really impressed. They come here to set up shop, and then they're really impressed with how maybe savvy the dining uh, population is, or they're just completely enamored with the landscape. And yeah, then they end up staying. And I mean, in Moss's case, obviously flourishing. I mean, it's about to be a, a third restaurant uh, opening up, and you know, even involved that, there's been some trial and error, and you know, everybody kind of finds their way here. I don't know if that answers the question um, you were asking. Or not, uh, but it's sort of different for everybody, you know. And well, does it does it ever occur to you that people um, in Maine end up wearing so many different hats that you can't necessarily say, okay, this person is a chef and a chef alone, you know, that they end up being so multifaceted in ways that yeah. maybe other cities don't allow them well, to. There's be. a lot of stuff you want to do here. That's <laughs> why so limit yourself to one thing, you know, when you actually can. Uh, do a lot of different things. Uh, there's just a lot to write about. Is a, you know, I, I. It is interesting though how that people sort of are multifaceted in, in their profession here. But I, I don't know. Like I said, for me, it's just the idle time thing. <laughs> like I don't like idle time, and there happens to be a lot to do here, so I'm gonna do it all while I can. You know, while my body still permits me to do so, which is where your job comes in as the wellness. <laughs> That's true. You're the food editor. I'm the wellness yep. editor, and hopefully we can create some. Somehow um... you wrangled that job away from me. I don't know how. <laughs> right. I'm not sure how you did it. <laughs> That's right. I know you. You came in a close second for that one, Joe. <laughs> I'm sorry. Really <laughs> thought I had it this time, but apparently it's just back to the eating. Well, and you know, I think eating is a big part of wellness. And in fact, we've proposed multiple. Um, articles for Maine Magazine. And it is that fine line between, okay, so what is wellness? It's, what is eating? Yeah. And they're, that's very blurry. It's the hardest topic. Whenever we talk about food for the wellness issue, it's like, do we do quote unquote unhealthy food? Because technically any food is unhealthy if you have enough of it. You know, you can, you can technically overdo it with anything, I think. And then, yeah. So then you're like, well, is it restorative food? Is it food that's just kind of good for you? Is it raw food? But it's a really hard thing to kind of get a definitive answer with as far as, you know, and from a wellness point of view, I guess it would almost be, you almost want to write more about like eating habits, you know, than actually the food you're, you're eating, just like the way you view food 
you know, can be a big part of it. So what does the food issue have in store for us this month? Uh, well, uh, it is actually my kind of return to Maine Magazine. So um, as far as my, my contribution to it, it's sort of a, it's not so much a love letter to Portland, but it's more of a entry back in as far as it, it sort of addresses things that I, I missed about Portland, um, a little bit of sort of getting in perspective. Because it's amazing when you're, you, you don't really get perspective until you move away as far as all this press that Portland has gotten. You talk to people in Boston and they sort of like, they ask where you're from and you're like in Portland. And they, they look at you like the streets are just paved with gold there. They're like, we've heard that everything you eat is the most amazing thing in the world. And it's like, wow, okay. Portland's come a long way where people in major metropolitan areas have this, they like look at me like I'm insane. Like, why are you here when you could be in Portland? You're a crazy person. Why would you ever move away from that? Uh, so I guess my my piece in the in the food issue sort of uh, addresses that a little bit and maybe where I think some of this reputation stems from. And um, but at the same time, how you know, I'm just as excited to come back and have access to the main Italian sandwich <laughs> again because they're delicious and nobody can explain why, but they're just so good. Yes, it's very true. I've tried to explain to people why I like the Amato's Italian and why their pickles are the best that I've ever tasted and why the tomatoes seem to taste so good. But unless you're from Maine and grew up on them, I just <laughs> no. don't know that it's something you can <laughs> if explain. If you refer to that as an Italian sandwich in the North End in Boston, it is like you could probably be lynched for that. <laughs> They're like green peppers, excuse me. And you're like, that's it. That's it for you. <laughs> but they are delicious and I love them. And so does everybody else. <laughs> but it's just funny. It's such a – I love, like, regional dishes like that, regional sandwiches. Everybody has, like, something that only people from a certain place really understand. And at the end of the day, is it because we just grew up eating them and it's, like, nostalgic and really comforting? Or is it because it's actually really good? I mean, I don't know. I think that's really fun to address. But anyway, so that's, uh, you know, that's the extent of my involvement uh, this uh, with the food issue uh, this time around, um, of course, you know, they'll offer the statewide coverage, I'm assuming. <laughs> yes, there's yeah. a lot of good stuff. I'm a little bit late to the to the game here as I just got back, but I managed to get my, my thing in. But Yes, I think the people who are listening probably understand that magazine deadlines are usually several months in advance. So we there are a lot of great articles for the March issue, and people are going to enjoy that. And also the Eat Main Guide, which is going to be coming out very soon, which offers a listing of restaurants across the state. Um, and actually, our interview, I believe, our interview with Sam Hayward in a Q&A form at the back. Nice, so. nice. Well, yeah, the Eat Main Guide it just keeps every year. He's getting better. It's the kind of uh, cumulative uh, coverage uh, throughout Maine Magazine since its founding. You know, we sort of keep adding on and adding on as we explore more of the state. So, And, you know, I'm with you, having traveled quite a bit outside of Maine. Um, I've gone to beautiful locales that have... Uh, wonderful beaches and brilliant sun and then tried to get a good meal and I feel like I'm so spoiled you are. Um, from having lived not only in Maine but in southern Maine and actually in other parts of Maine as well. So I, I think it's a, it's a very interesting time to be living in Maine and to be working on the food scene. Yeah, we have it really, really good here. I mean, it's obviously we have great restaurants, but people also don't necessarily – always acknowledge how amazing like our markets are like you have we have so many great like butcher shops you know fishmongers and then there's you know there's like five asian markets you know for a small city that's incredible you know you can pretty much get anything you want here if you can't get it in a restaurant you can get the ingredients somewhere to make it yourself which i am absolutely in love with and i 
missed like crazy when I was gone. So, you know. And we also have access to local foods and farmers who are growing it and increasingly in every different season of the year. And um, I think that Maine used to be known, I believe, around the Civil War time, the Bethel area was actually known as the breadbasket and served a lot of the soldiers. So it's fascinating that we're kind of coming back around to this again and the importance of our local Maine foods is becoming increasingly known. Absolutely. Well, Joe, it's a pleasure to have you (laughs) in our studio today. It's a pleasure to have you acting as the food editor again for Maine Magazine. It's good to be back. And we look forward to great things. How do people read more of the writing that you do? Uh, Well, obviously, uh, through Maine Magazine, through the Maine blog and the Maine Magazine, um, I still maintain, uh, you know, foodcoma.me. And then I, yeah, pretty much if you... I guess you, if you put my name in Google, you get a, a pretty varied list of things if you uh, want the whole experience. But, you know, I think in the, in the meantime, you, the main magazine stuff will be the one to watch, I think, for now. So, Well, thank you for coming in. I've been thank speaking with Joe Riccio, who is a fellow Yarmouth High School graduate and <laughs> friend of mine. Actually, I'm a Chevers graduate, but I went. I did some Yarmouth and I'm from Yarmouth. I okay. Set, you know, I had to set the record straight. I can't let, you know. Okay. <laughs> So I've been speaking with Joe Riccio. He's a fellow Yarmouth native, let's native, yes. say. And I encourage people who are listening to spend some time reading his work in Maine Magazine and um, through Eat Maine and maybe seeing you out and about in the food scene. I'll be out. You have been listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, show number 129, Eat Maine. Our guests have included Harding Lee Smith and Joe Riccio. For more information on our guests and extended interviews, visit doctorlisa.org. Also, visit themainmag.com to find out more about food in Maine. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's show, sign up for our e-newsletter and like our Dr. Lisa Facebook page. Follow me on Twitter and Pinterest and read my take on health and well-being on the Bountiful blog. We love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour. We welcome your suggestions for future shows. Also, let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here. We are privileged that they enable us to bring the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour to you each week. This is Dr. Lisa Belial. I hope that you have enjoyed our Eat Maine show. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day. May you have a bountiful life. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine, Marcy Booth of Booth, Maine, Apothecary by Design, Premier Sports Health, a division of Black Bear Medical, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage, Ted Carter Inspired Landscapes, Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial, Dream Kitchen Studios, Harding Lee Smith of The Rooms, and Bangor Savings Bank. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is recorded in the studio of Maine Magazine at 75 Market Street, Portland, Maine. Our executive producers are Kevin Thomas, Susan Grisanti, and Dr. Lisa Belial. Our assistant producer is Leanne Wiemet. Audio production and original music by John C. McCain. Our online producer is Kelly Clinton. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is available for download free on iTunes. See the Dr. Lisa website or Facebook page for details.